How about your next case? Yes. So the next patient that we saw is a 54-year-old woman who approximately seven years ago presented with a 1.6 centimeter triple negative breast cancer. Grade three, she had a micromet to one axillary node. She was treated with dose-dense acetaxel followed by radiation therapy to the left breast. In October of 2008, she noticed sternal pain, which gradually worsened. She had a PET scan, which showed a large destructive metastatic lesion involving the manubrium and body in the sternum. It's biopsy, then it was triple negative adenocarcinoma consistent with metastatic breast cancer. She also had some small nodes in the superior mediastinum and the contralateral axilla, uncertain significance. So that's where we were about a year ago, a year plus ago. So Alan, what did you do at that point a year ago? Well, I wanted to get a consult with one of my radiation colleagues. I sent her to the radiation oncologist who had actually given her radiation seven years before, discussed the case with that radiation oncologist. In addition, we have a multidisciplinary breast conference at our cancer center once a week. And I was planning to present her case to that conference. Often it's reassuring to patients to know that they will be getting not just my opinion, but the opinion of many other experts in the field from a multidisciplinary perspective. So I was able to offer that reassurance to the patient. Joe, what about the issue of the possibility of it being a false negative ER? Of course, you have the primary and metastatic disease, some triple negative, but it is seven years later. Any thoughts about that? It's something I'd be less concerned about in someone who, as you said, the test is negative in both the primary and the metastatic. I'd be more concerned about that if you're dealing with someone who, say, initially had a ER-positive tumor and then relapses with an ER-negative tumor, just to make sure that that was true, because then you're sort of missing out on the opportunity to benefit from a whole class of potentially useful drugs. I've heard it said that ER is not as reliable and measured in bone biopsies. Is that true? I think the tumor is heterogeneous, and any organ that you sample, there's going to be a possibility that you're not sampling a uniform or representative sample of the tumor. Typically, bone lesions are more difficult to sample, and you're getting smaller pieces, so that may account for it. If anything, actually, bone lesions, there is a greater tendency for ER-positive disease to metastasize to bone lesions. So So what did the radiation oncologist say, Alan? Start with chemotherapy and call me later. And she was having pain? She was having pain, yes, quite serious pain. And yet he didn't want to radiate her? Did not want to radiate her initially, no. So what did you do? And one of his concerns was she had previously received radiation to the breast, and there's this issue of overlapping fields. Right, right. So I started her on a Braxane plus Avastin weekly. Three weeks of Braxane on, one week off, the Avastin every 14 days. And her pain promptly disappeared. Her pain was gone within a month. And I treated her with this combination for a total of six cycles, so roughly six months. Got a follow-up PET scan, showed that the sternal lesion was still there but looked a little smaller, and there was much less uptake And in addition, the other nodes we saw were no longer showing any uptake. So at that point, I referred her to the radiation oncologist. He delivered a course of radiation therapy to the sternum. And she finished that several months ago. And I've been following her, and she, to date, has no evidence of disease recurrence. Now, it's still early, but... Joe, what are your thoughts about this case, and what was it like meeting her today? She's a lovely lady. She's very youthful-appearing and active 
especially for a grandmother. She's perfectly intact and clearly indicated that she felt almost immediate relief when the cytotoxic therapy and bevacizumab was initiated. Interestingly, this is a woman who, as a manifestation of a recurrence, had a several-month history of sternal pain, went to her, her doctors who had evaluated her and even ordered imaging studies that included an MRI. Of the breasts, Of yes. the breasts, yes. and there was no evidence of metastasis seen, or at least that was noted. And because of the fact that she had persistent symptoms, she persisted with her doctor, and finally a diagnosis was made. The breast surgeon, actually. She saw her breast surgeon, who sent her for a PET scan. Mm -hmm. So she's a very astute breast surgeon. The other thing that's of note in her case is that she developed a recurrence of triple negative breast cancer about six years out, which is a little late. Most triple negative recurrences occur within the first five years. There are recurrences that occur beyond five years. And secondly, it's sort of an isolated recurrence with involvement of bone, which is a little bit unusual. So when most people think of triple negative disease, they think about this aggressive, rapidly progressive disease that involves multiple visceral organs. But there are some other flavors of this disease, and this is one of them. There is a subset of people who can have disease that behaves in a more indolent fashion. I think she's one of those people. Fascinating. How did she tolerate the NAB, paclitaxel, and BEV? Fine. She had virtually no side effects. She did develop, after she completed the therapy, headaches, but I don't think it was related to the BEV because it was after the chemotherapy and BEV was completed. So she had no neuropathy, which a little bit surprising to me. She had had you know, four cycles of dose-dense taxol back seven years ago, and now I gave her six cycles of you know, weekly Abraxane. No neuropathy symptoms whatsoever. What prompted you to use nabpaclitaxel as opposed to paclitaxel or docetaxel? I'm not a big nab user. Generally, I restrict nab to patients for whom there's some contraindication to giving corticosteroids. However, in this patient, it was an unusual case. She had an isolated sternal metastasis, and although in general with metastatic breast cancer, we think palliation. In this patient, I was thinking cure. Now, there really isn't strong data that NAB is more effective than Taxol, but there may be some soft evidence that perhaps it is. And there is good phase two data that NAB can be safely combined with BEV. And so in this case, I thought it made sense to do it. So actually, I guess, Joe, there's a clinical trial right now that's using BEV with either NAB, Ix, or paclitaxel. What do you think about the use of NAB in this situation, and how do you make that decision? I think it's a reasonable choice. There are certainly data available supporting the use of both weekly NAB-paclitaxel and NAB-paclitaxel in combination with bevacizumab. My own personal approach is to reserve the use of NAB-paclitaxel for the situations that Alan described, those individuals who either have a relative contraindication to corticosteroid use, who've been intolerant of corticosteroids, or who have a history of hypersensitivity reactions to conventional paclitaxel or other drugs formulated in cremophore. I think NAB is certainly a more convenient agent for patients. What do you think, Joe? You can give it in a shorter infusion time. So from that perspective, certainly it would be more convenient, and it would avoid the need for corticosteroids, although... I think it's underappreciated that you can greatly reduce the use of corticosteroids by tapering the dose and in some cases even eliminating the corticosteroids when you're using conventional paclitaxel. But it does carry some risk of having a hypersensitivity reaction, 
whereas I think that's minimized with the nabpaclitaxel. So it's interesting, you know, this lady presented with this recurrence October 2008, and then the following ASCA, we have the PARP inhibitor presentation by Joyce O'Shaughnessy in triple negative breast cancer. Joe, can you kind of just briefly summarize what we know about, I guess at this point, it's just the one PARP inhibitor, BSI-201, and how does, now there's a phase three trial out there right now that a lot of people have access to. Where does a trial like that fit in? If this woman presented today, would you consider trying to put her on a trial like that? I think everyone is interested and enamored of PARP inhibitors for triple negative breast cancer and trying to gain access to them for their patients. The trial that you refer to is actually the confirmatory trial has completed accrual. And who knows, this drug may be commercially available soon, and I think that will be a big boon for our patients. As you might imagine, there are a number of pharmaceutical companies that are scrambling to develop their own PARP inhibitors, and there are a number of others, both parenteral and orally administered drugs. There are some trials out there where people can get access to some of these agents, but it is somewhat limited, and it is somewhat difficult to get them. Frustrating, I would say. Yeah. I would say, though, that that study, the O'Shaughnessy study, did include patients who had zero to two prior chemotherapy regimens, and the patients who were more heavily pretreated also seemed to experience benefit. So this is a class of drugs, unlike bevacizumab, where you probably need to use it in first or maybe second line to maximize the potential for benefit. These are drugs that are probably would be active in patients who might be more heavily pretreated. We certainly need to see more data with more studies with different PARP inhibitors, combining them with different agents, and also in different breast cancer phenotypes. So for example, would a patient say who has an ERPR negative HER2 positive breast cancer that's exhausted anti-HER2 directed therapy, would that type of a patient benefit from a regimen including a PARP inhibitor? I think that remains to be determined. I guess we really don't know much, if anything, about PARP inhibitors other than, I guess, BRCA and triple negative. Yeah, there's relatively little information. There are some studies, phase one, small phase two studies ongoing with a variety of PARP inhibitors. There's a neoadjuvant study that's ongoing, and it is an exciting field, but I think we're going to see more than one PARP inhibitor in the future, and I'm hoping that that happens sooner rather than later. Any thoughts about the chemo that it was paired with in the O'Shaughnessy study, Joe? It was, you know, Carbo and GEM, which is not a particularly common regimen to be using, I wouldn't think, in first-line metastatic disease. Well, the conventional wisdom is that triple-negative disease may be more susceptible to agents that induce DNA damage like carboplatin and also to antimetabolites like gemcitabine. I must say, though, that there's actually very little information about the use of single agent, either cisplatin or carboplatin or gemcitabine as single agent therapy in a pure triple negative population, number one. Number two, the results with the gem-carbo combination in triple negative breast cancer in this trial were pretty disappointing. I mean, for a regimen that was selected because it's supposed to be more effective in this population, the results in that arm are pretty disappointing. So there's certainly a lot of room for improvement. I'm still uncertain about what the optimal chemotherapy choice is for a patient who has triple negative disease, and I'm not necessarily convinced that that combination is necessarily the preferred backbone that one would need to use as initial therapy. And that the same principles that we use to manage, say, an ER-positive breast cancer wouldn't necessarily apply to triple negative disease as well. So there was you know, Judy Garber's trial from the Farber. Right triple negative induction chemotherapy with single agent cisplatin 
seemed as if platinum was an active agent in these uh, Yes, patients. that was a neoadjuvant trial. So that's a different setting. There's not much information, really. Most of the literature about carboplatin and cisplatin is the older literature 10, 20 years ago. And some of the studies, ER status is not even reported. So and certainly HER2 status wasn't something that was routinely tested back then. So I don't really think we know what the activity level is for single-agent carboplatin or cisplatin in a pure triple-negative population used at an optimal dose. So I guess the last thing I want to ask you, and we'll start with you, Joe, is what was it like to do this and you know see Alan's patients in his practice today? I don't know if you've had that experience before, but what was it like? I have not had a similar experience before, and I found actually his practice to be not too dissimilar from my practice in terms of the types of patients that he saw and the types of problems. Some of the cultural backgrounds of the patients that we saw was different than the type of patients that I'm accustomed to seeing in my part of New York City, but the issues are very, very similar. What was it like for you, Alan? I thought it was great having Joe there. I didn't know what it was going to be like. But, you know, Joe has really an encyclopedic knowledge of the data, as you've just heard, for breast cancer treatment. And he was extremely helpful. These patient problems that we presented here, some of them are really pretty tough problems. And there often isn't any one, you know, right answer to them. So it's helpful to have a knowledgeable colleague, particularly someone like Joe, who really has the literature at his fingertips, to provide support and come up with some additional ideas about what to do. You know, it's interesting. One of the most common comments that we get about our audio programs is the sense of reassurance that oncologists in practice feel when they hear investigators struggle because they kind of think they're alone and not knowing what the right answer is. And, you know, I think when you hear that everybody has the same challenges, it's kind of reassuring in a way. Yes, Yeah, we certainly had our share of struggling today. And in many ways, the more options you have as a patient, that means you're in trouble. (laughs) And I've often said this, is that I'd rather have one curative option than 10 non-curative options. And unfortunately for many of the patients we saw today, many of whom actually presented with fairly advanced disease at presentation, it would be nicer to have options that had a higher therapeutic index, let's put it kindly. But we really saw problems at both ends of the spectrum. We saw the issue of trying to optimally use all of the agents at our disposal in patients who had advanced incurable disease. And at the other end of the spectrum, we saw patients who had earlier stages of disease where we had pretty much the same tools, but we were struggling with a different problem, and that is how to minimize their use and how to optimize their use and how to appropriately select them. And therein lies the problem, the need for better therapies, and for those therapies that we do have, a much better and more intelligent and refined way to identify which patient is benefiting from which treatment? The patients, I think, really appreciated that Joe was there because I think they liked that I was willing to discuss their care with another oncologist, that I was open to other ideas about how to help them. So I thought that was good. I had a fellow and a nurse practitioner with me. I think they really appreciated having Joe there too. 